Wow, it's crazy to see everyone at church. I feel like over the past few weeks, it's kind of been touch and go. It's been crazy if you're a part of camp meeting, whether it was West Coast Korean camp meeting up in Napa or Oregon Conference camp meeting in Gladstone. There were family vacations. Was, I feel like the past few weeks were really crazy. And I was looking at the sermon schedule because I felt like it's been a really, really long time since I've preached. And as I was preparing this message, I was like, when is the last time I preached? It was like three weeks ago. Like, it wasn't even that long ago. Last week, Isaiah shared his testimony. The week before that, during Korean camp meeting, Ernie uh, blessed us with two spiritual nuggets that can keep us going. And the week before that, it was me closing out our series on doubt. But for whatever reason, it feel like these past two, three weeks have been like extra long and like months have passed in between. But it's good to be back at church. It's good to see everyone here in person, whether you're joining us online from wherever you are. Um, we're grateful right, you're joining us virtually or here in person. It's awesome that we're here together worshiping. And just to give a little recap or or heads up of what my life and a lot of the people here's lives has been the past few weeks. Um, summer generally for church and especially for pastors are kind of like the craziest parts of the year. It's a combination of a bunch of these, like I call them like church summer events, whether it's VBS. Actually, we'll do a quick recap. If you're a rock member, this is what your summer more or less looked like. We started with VBS and we jumped right into, I mean like right into Art of Worship. We had a week break and then we had Oregon Conference camp meeting if you joined us for that. West Coast Camp meeting the week right after that. And in between all of this, you were squeezing in family vacations. People were coming up. You were going down. You were visiting all these people. Not to mention that in all of this, normally speaking, we would normally have a Kayam on top of all of this. So if this summer was crazy, theoretically, it could be worse. It could be crazier. Um, but as busy as this summer was, it was kind of nice for me in that sense. And if you saw me at, at West Coast, I know some of you guys saw me at West Coast Camp meeting, and I... So on like Monday night, Tuesday, I kind of just felt like a zombie. I was just walking through. I was like really tired. A lot of crazy stuff happened. But there was this kind of, this is nice. It's nice to have all this stuff back. It's nice to have camp meeting. It's nice to see everyone's face again. It's nice to have art of worship in person down there. And it was nice to have VBS and all this stuff. And a part of me was as tired and as crazy as these past few weeks were. I was very, very blessed by this past, let's say, four or five weeks where all these crazy things happened. And for me, I don't know about you, if you grew up in church, this is kind of normal. Like, this is what summer is supposed to feel like, right? You have all these camps, you meet all these friends you haven't seen, especially if you're in the Pacific Northwest. It's not often you can see your friends in SoCal, but camp meeting, Kayam, Art of Worship, these are excuses for you to see your friends again and have that moment where you worship together and bond and grow together. And for me, especially the back-to-back camp meeting weeks, as tired and as draining as they were, I, it reminded me how awesome and what a blessing camp meeting were. And these and how awesome these events were. There are moments that I hadn't felt in a really long time where I looked around and I was reminded, like, yes, like, this is why I'm in ministry. This is why I follow God into pastoral ministry. And this is why there are certain joys that you get when you look around. And kids, especially at camp meeting, typically at the, at the last week, Friday night, we give a chance for the kids to come up. And we have, like, a praise session, and it's kind of an open mic. And kids can come up, and they can grab the mic and share how they saw God that week. We're very specific. The prompt is, how did you see God this past week? It's not a time for shadow. It's not a time for, like, you know, giving a shout out to your friends and to your group. But specifically, the prompt is, how did you see God this week? And during that time, it's always one of the most moving moments for me, especially as a coordinator, because generally speaking, like, I don't really get to speak with the kids very much. At the end of the week, the kids are like, oh, like, they miss their counselors, and they miss their friends, and nobody misses the person that, like, the coordinator that ran it all. Like, the counselors will miss me, but I generally, I don't get to see many of the kids, uh, kids, and I don't learn a lot of their names. But that last night, when all those kids came up, and they're like, you know, 
I saw God through the messages. I saw God through my, how welcoming my small group was. I saw God through the fact that I was new and nobody like, knew my name, but everyone was so welcoming and kind to me. I saw God through the truth that I discovered during worship. I saw God through the praise that we sang together. It was a really moving moment for me where I, I really was reminded of like, this is, these are the unique joys that you can only really experience in Christian service. Now, again, for a lot of you, you can probably relate to some aspect of that, especially if you grew up in the church. In the summer, chances are you probably attended some version of this, whether it was a big lake or sunset lake, one of the conference camps or West Coast camp meeting, a Kayam, a Bible trip, whatever you did, a mission trip. A lot of growing up in the church, a lot of the summers in growing up in the church are centered around these week-long revivals, right, where you come together with your age group and it's just you, other believers, an awesome speaker, and like usually you're in the mountains somewhere. And you spend a week just growing and learning, and you come back from that experience, and you're like on fire for God. And especially in the summer, you have so many of these events. You go out of worship into Kayam, into camp meeting, into whatever the church is doing during that time, and you get to serve at VBS. And it's an amazing time of, traditionally speaking, like spiritual growth. And a word that's used, that's thrown around a lot during this time is the phrase spiritual high. If you grew up in the church, you've probably heard this many, many times, right? Oh, man, I had such a spiritual high. I came back from camp meeting. I came back from Kayam. And I, mom, dad, I grew so much. I'm like, I got such a spiritual high right now. Which is kind of a weird thing to say. If, you, if you're not at church and you didn't grow up hearing that statement, it's kind of a weird phrase to say. But generally what people mean by that is, I had this week-long event. I went away into the mountains somewhere. And I feel like now, after the things that I learned, after the worships, after the people that I met, I feel that now I am closer to God. God is more relevant in my life. I've learned more about God, and now God and I are close. A lot of times what happens to kind of compound that effect is at the end of the week, a lot of times the speaker will make like an altar call or a call to baptism, right? If you, if you feel like God has transformed your life this week, raise your hand, come to the front, or they'll do a prayer where everyone closes their eyes, right? Especially in like junior high and high school. Everyone closed their eyes, nobody look around. It's not about like peer pressure. But if you want to recommit your life to God, raise your hand, and a lot of people will come up, and there'll be tears, and your heart has changed, and you're convinced on Friday night, that now you and God, you're a disciple now. You're an apostle. Like, you and God are close. You're tight. And now, you've, now you're, like, on fire for God. And two or three days later, you come down for whatever that is, whatever location you're at, and you come back home. And school hasn't even started yet. And you're like, you know what? I'm just going to start reading the Bible. And you crack open your Bible, and you start at Genesis, and you're like, I'm just going to read, like, seven chapters a day. And I'm going to do a devotional every day. And I'm going to pray more. I'm going to rededicate my life to God, which is all good. Nothing is wrong with that. But for most of us, you know where this is going. If you've had this experience before, a week later, five days later, for some of us, three, by Wednesday, you stopped. And you got to Genesis chapter 3, or oh, the fall of man, that's good. And then you, that's it. You never got to Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve, the only humans you know in the Bible, and that's it. You st you'd even get to, like, Leviticus, where, like, people are like, ah, oh, it's understandable if you would stop there. And this happens, especially if you've done several of these camps, time and time and time again, where you go to camp and you're like, I love Jesus. Jesus is the best. Hooray. I love it. I'm going to rededicate my life. And you make all these promises. You set all these goals. And you come back down. And maybe for a day or two, you make these changes. You make these grandiose changes. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to finish. I'm going to be at Genesis to Revelation by the end of this year, right? Three months, I can do it. But for whatever reason, just like a New Year's resolution, these never really seem to stick. And if that happens enough times, 
Not only is it just like a bummer, if this happens enough times, it can make you disillusioned to these events. And worst case scenario, you start to hate them. Man, it's all fake. That whole, you shouldn't go to those events anyways, because those events, they're just fake. They just like prop up your faith artificially, and you always have a crash afterwards. It's not worth going. Well, at the very least, you've made that your, like that's how, what your relationship with God is based off of. If you grew up in the church, sometimes you can get to a point where your relationship with God, your interaction with God, the relevance of God in your life is based on events, right? You go to camp meeting, you're this spiritual high. I learned so much. I'm reading the Bible. And you just slowly crash into the next event. Oh, Rock has a weekend revival. I love Jesus. And you slowly coast down. Oh, we have a Christmas series. God is everywhere. Comes back up. New Year's resolution. It comes back down until our next thing. And a lot of times, the danger of this is that for some of us, our relationship with God is largely based on what is happening around us. When is the next spiritual high I can get? What is the next time I can have this spiritual revival? Because outside of these events, outside of going away, outside of being in this unsustainable environment, God doesn't seem all that relevant for me. And if that's you, and this is perfectly relevant because for some of us, we just got back from camping a few weeks ago, and for most of us, it's starting to wear off. I'm not going to name any names, but I know for a fact that there's some people in this church that at camp meeting were like, I want to give my life to God. I want to rededicate my life. I want to take baptism classes. I want to give my life to God. But the reality is this. By now, chances are your life doesn't look that different from what it did a week before camp meeting. And again, that's a very, very discouraging place to be where you like everything was so real. You definitely made that decision. You definitely, that sermon was definitely powerful and life-changing. The praise really was amazing. And you really didn't mean it at the time. But now that you're not there anymore, now that you're back home, now that you're getting ready for school, now that summer's winding down, you just can't grit your teeth and find that motivation anymore. But again, if that's you, I don't mean to shame you. I can definitely say I've been there many times myself. I'm super glad you've joined us because our latest series and our newest series at Rock is called Crash Course. And this series is all is perfectly designed for you if you're feeling this right now, that crash, that spiritual crash, where you definitely had this moment during the summer at some point in your life where you were on fire for God. But shortly after this event, shortly after that message, shortly after that place, you came back home and you just weren't quite the same anymore. And you couldn't really sustain that level of devotion, that level of commitment, that level of energy and relevance to God in your life. Because whether or not you think a spiritual high is good or bad, and there are several schools of thought on that, I think we can all agree it's not a very sustainable way to build your relationship with God. If your relationship with God is built solely on special events, I mean, you can extrapolate that to any normal relationship. If your relationship with your significant other is only relevant on Valentine's, your anniversary, and their birthday, it's not a very healthy, sustainable way if you ignore them every other day of the year. Yet I would argue that so many of us have gotten trapped in this cycle of just waiting for the next, I just need the next thing. I'm in a low right now. Spiritually, I haven't read my Bible. Yeah, God's not really relevant. But if I can just get to the next event, the next weekend revival, the next week of prayer, if I can just wait for school to start again, then I'll be good. And we're almost completely reliant on these little events to get us through for the rest of our lives. So in this series, we're going to look at a few reasons why that may be the case for you. Because I would argue for most of us, you don't want to be in that place. It's really disappointing and very disillusioning that time and time again come crashing down after every event, and you feel fake. 
you feel like a very, like, I am not a good Christian. I'm not an authentic, I don't actually have a relationship with God because I can't sustain these goals. I can't sustain, sustain those feelings or those thoughts. And so, if you're in that place, we're glad you're here. We're going to take steps in this series called Crash Course to take you away from an events-based relationship with model with Jesus to a more sustainable, consistent, healthy relationship with your faith. It's based on the character and the promises and the actions of Jesus rather than scheduled events and camps. Before we go any further, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity for us to come together, Lord. I feel like it's been a while since a lot of these people um, in this building and online, in our online audience have been together, Lord, as summer starts to wind down. It's really good to see everyone in person and to be able to worship you with our fellow Rock family, Lord. God, I ask you, go into this word and this message. Um, Father, I ask that if more of you means less of me, you take absolutely everything, Father. And I speak that for everyone in this congregation as well, Father. Whatever hangups we have, Lord, whatever, whatever things are keeping us from hearing your word today, Father, I ask that you take everything, Lord, that you increase and that we decrease during this time, Father. During this time of worship, we dedicate this time in our hearts to you. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So, as a pastor, one question I occasionally get asked is, hey, like, you're a pastor, you, you know, study theology, what is your favorite, like, Bible verse? What is your favorite Bible passage? You must have one. And, you know, people, it's like a fun question to ask, I guess. Um, and honestly, it's kind of a hard question for me, and then I don't know if I really, really have one. Like, my favorite passage, my favorite verse often changes with the season of life that I'm in and the stage of life that I'm in and what I'm going through. But I do have an answer for if there was a Bible story that I wish I could have been at, been an audience at, or like been a fly on the wall for, I definitely do have an answer for that question. That story is found in the third chapter of Daniel, which is, if you know, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, there's a story that despite it being found in the book of Daniel, has almost nothing to do with Daniel at all. It's the story of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the context of the story is that these three Jewish boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are in Babylon as kind of like war captives taken over, but they've worked their way into as like government officials in this land of Babylon. But again, they are foreigners in a different culture. And the tension of this chapter, the story gets introduced when the king of Babylon has a bit of an ego power trip and he decides to create a big golden statue. And to commemorate it, it's a sort of dedication ceremony of the statue, he invites all of his government officials to come to the dedication ceremony and he instructs them at the ceremony, when you guys all arrive, you are to bow down to the statue when I give you this. You're going to have a musical cue, a bunch of instruments going to play, and everyone will bow down and we'll like, hip, hip, hooray, we'll cut the ribbon for this big statue. I want you to worship this now. The problem for our three Jewish protagonists is that because of their Hebrew heritage, this breaks the second of their ten most fundamental laws of not having idols. So at, at the very core of their beliefs of the Ten Commandments, the second of which is that they should not worship any other idols or graven images, which would be like the statue um, in Babylon. So, there's this point of tension of what do they do? They're invited to the event. They're, the instructions are very clear. Actually, at the very beginning of the story, Nebuchadnezzar makes it clear in the invitation that anyone that does not attend, anyone that does not bow to this statue, will be burned. Basically, the penalty for this is death. Please welcome, like, please come. And so they go to this event, and obviously they can't not go to this event, so they, they show up as government officials, and as they're there, the musical instrument sounds, da 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 and everyone bows except for these three Jewish boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand there and refuse to bow to the statue. Now, this grants them an audience with the king. The king hears about this. They get routed out. They go in front of the king. And understandably, the king is quite furious. 
But it's interesting that he, he almost has enough of a relationship with them. That he clearly knows them to a certain extent. He almost extends them like an olive branch. Hey, I'm very upset. I'm very angry. But maybe you didn't hear the instructions. The instructions were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the music plays, you have to bow. Otherwise, we will throw you in. He almost gives them like an out, right? Hey, you have a second chance. Maybe you didn't hear me the first time. But you're supposed to bow like everybody else. And if you don't, there is a very clear threat in that I will kill you, right? It's very clear now. Now there's no questioning what the instructions were. And this is the part of the story where I really wish, like this is the part where I wish I could have been a fly on the wall or snuck into the palace or wherever this conversation took place and seen the look on their faces because I imagined they were unfazed at all. And we're going to have the scripture for you on, on the screen, Daniel chapter 3. I'm starting from the first 16. So this is their response. So they've been threatened. The instructions are clear. This is their response to King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Basically saying, we're not going to pretend like it didn't happen. We're going to be like, oh, no, I didn't. Were that the instructions? We're very clear. We get it. We didn't bow. We have no defense. Next verse. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace. So, given that we did not bow, we understand the consequences. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, it being the blazing furnace, and he will deliver us from her majesty's hands. What he's saying is this. We understand the consequences. We fully understand who you are. Arguably the most powerful human they will have ever met in their lifetime. The emperor of the Babylonian empire. We know who you are. We understand that the consequences are death. But what you may or may not know is the reason we didn't bow down is that the person we believe in, the person our faith is built on, the person our trust is in, is infinitely bigger than you. That our God, the God that we serve, Yahweh, the one true God, is able to deliver us from you, from whatever consequence you could possibly have, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. When it comes down to it, God versus you will take God any time. And this last sentence, what they say after this, is in my humble opinion the greatest Bible quote ever by someone that is not God. I genuinely, if there was a mic in this room, somebody dropped it. But even if he does not, again, continue, this is the conclusion of their, of their defense, essentially. But even if he does not, basically, even if God does not save us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And this statement right here, even if he does not save us, we want you to know, your majesty, that, he will not, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This statement said by someone that was probably not much older than like a college student today is the foundation of part one of our series. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they face certain death, I mean, this is like the definition of going out with a bang, right? There's no, there's no amount of, oh, I'm so sorry, can you please? There's no compromise. They're very bold, and they look the most powerful man that they'll ever meet, and they say, it doesn't matter. We understood the consequences. We showed up anyways. But to be honest, your threats don't phase us because God will save us. But even if God chooses not to save us, nothing changes. It doesn't change the object of our faith and our dependency on God. Meaning that for these three Jewish boys, their faith was not dependent on whether or not God answered 
their prayer of rescue. It's very interesting. You don't find too much of this, this statement in the Bible where they say, I believe God will save us. God will save us. But even if he doesn't, asterisk, even if he doesn't, nothing changes. And I truly believe that these kids or these boys, however old they were, truly meant what they said because of how the story actually plays out. So after they say this, understandably, Nebuchadnezzar is furious, and so he orders their execution. But before he does that, just to make a big show out of everything, he commands that the furnace be, be burned seven times hotter, whatever that exactly, exactly means. And then he gives them an armed escort after he binds their limbs together to be thrown into the furnace. If you know how the story ends, you know that this following statement is true. God does not save them from the furnace. They get thrown in. They get armed. And I imagine that for them, and I don't know exactly who was doing all the talking, if they kind of like tag teamed or like one person stood and they all just nodded behind him. But I imagine that as they had an armed escort to a burning inferno, as their hands and feet were tied, it became very real to them that, hey, maybe God is not going to save us from this, right? I imagine that when they felt the heat that killed the guards that threw him in, these, the guards died without actually having gone into the furnace. That's how hot it was. That when they start to feel the heat of this inferno, it probably clicked, oh, if God was going to save us, he probably would have done it by now. And so I don't think God is going to save us from this. However, there's no, oh, actually, pause. Maybe I will bow down. There's no backing out. They're walked in, and again, we don't know what their expressions were, and again, we don't know whether they believe this or not, but I imagine if you read the story, I'm sure it became very real for them as they're being escorted in. Now, maybe they had a second chance here or there, but they get thrown into the furnace, and they fall to the ground, and it's not until after they get thrown in, and the person, the, the poor guard that throws them in is now dead because of the heat, that they fall down, and they realize, I have been saved. And they stand up, and the story goes, then the, the story switches to the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, who is now outside of the furnace. And he looks in, and he's astonished because he asked the, the person next to him, hey, how many people did we throw in? And they're like, we threw in three guys. And he says, well, ooh, there are definitely four people in there, and one of them does not look like a human being. And so for Nebuchadnezzar, this whole thing clicks, right? Oh, my goodness, they were right. There is something much bigger than myself at play here. And it's a very humbling moment for him where he calls them out, and he realizes nothing has happened to them outside of their ropes being burned off. They're perfectly fine. They don't even smell like smoke. And so he does this kind of like, oh, he worships them. He says, hey, you know what? New decree. Everyone respect their God. And they live happily ever after. And we don't really see too much of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for the rest of this book or really for the rest of the Bible. The reason I bring this story up, A, it is actually one of my favorite Bible stories of all time. And I really do wish I could have been there when he says that final line of even if he doesn't, nothing changes, your majesty. Oh, just to give like a round of applause, or like, woohoo, like when that happens. Because really, I think this is like the most epic line in all of scripture by a human being. And I imagine that for a lot of us, for any of your parents out here, like you, if you're growing your child in the church and, and in faith, this is who you want your children to become, right? Someone that's bold-faced and courage and confident in the face of the greatest earthly power that they'll ever meet. They're so calm and cool and collected because they know that the God that they serve is bigger than whatever his majesty is. But the reason I bring this in the context of the spiritual highs and lows and, and, and this crash course series is I want to ask you a question. This story is amazing. 
and it's awesome. And chances are, you, if you grew up in church, you heard this when you're in the children's ministry. And if you're in Rock Kids, chances are it's come up in your lesson studies about the bravery of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how this is, this is faith in action. Look at them stand up to the king. Look at them be saved by God and allow God to work in their lives. But I want to ask you this question. For you, if the story had an alternate ending, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego died and they were burned alive, does this story change anything for you? Think about it. If the story went, even if he doesn't, your majesty will not change. And he says, err, he's angry. The furnace gets hotter. They throw him in, and these three Hebrew boys burned to death. And that's it. That's how the story ends. And we don't hear about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ever again. They're just another set of martyrs on a long list in the Bible. Does this change the essence of the story for you? Does it bother you a little bit? I mean, I'm sure then it gets taken out of like the children's ministry, children's story rotation for sure. It's a much more gruesome story now. But as an adult, like think about what does that change for you in the story? Because I imagine for a lot of us, the reason this story is cool, the reason this story is awesome, the reason we teach this story to our kids, if we do at all, is because look, this is faith in action. Look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at them get rewarded for their faith. See, they stood up for their faith. They were strong. They were bold. They were courageous. And God came to their rescue in the most spectacular way possible. These three boys, they met Jesus. Like hundreds of years before anybody else, they met Jesus. Jesus was in them in the furnace. Like what an honor. And like, it's just like really cool. Like they experienced one of the craziest miracles. Jesus walked on water. They walked through fire. Amazing. Right? And the story is largely packaged as like, Look at them being rewarded for their faith. This is what true Christianity is. This is what it means to stand up for your faith. But the question is, can you still say that if these three boys die at the end of the story? At the end of the story, it's Shadrach, Michigan, and Abednego, dead. King Nebuchadnezzar has a final say, and now everyone is worshiping the statue. What happens? Imagine if for a lot of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, yeah, that does change. Then it doesn't really become a story about, like, you being rewarded for your faith. It becomes a story of martyrdom, right? Of, oh, that's good. Don't do that, though. But, like, you know, it's good that they did it. It, it kind of changes the essence of the story for a lot of us, I imagine. But why? If that alternate ending bothers you, why? Obviously, any death gruesome is sad, but as far as theologically... As far as your understanding of God, your understanding of faith, your understanding of prayer, why does that change anything? And I say that because the irony of this alternate ending changing anything for you is that for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this alternate ending changes nothing. I truly believe they meant it, that whether or not God saves us, it doesn't matter. We believe what we believe, we believe in God, and we're not going to suddenly back out if we know that God doesn't save us. They say it themselves. And whether or not God saved them from certain death was irrelevant to the measure of their faith and their conviction in worshiping the one true God. But for us, if the hypothetical death of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bothers you and changes the essence of the story, if now the story is about something else, there's a potential connection between how bothered you are by this alternate ending and how prone you may be to spiritual highs and their crashes. Because it's possible, and I say this 
touching me, and may, maybe this may not be true, but if this is the case for you, if you really were that bothered, and you're like, that story then doesn't become one that I like very much anymore, it's possible that maybe your relationship with God is based on a results-based relationship. A results-based relationship. What do I mean by that? Where your relationship with God, your faith, is based on what you get out of Christianity. What can Christianity offer you? What can membership in the church offer you? What can your faith in Jesus offer you? As opposed to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego felt. Which is also why your faith, if that's the case, which is also why your faith can possibly be so heavily influenced by events and spiritual highs, because your faith is highly correlated with what is going on in your life. What do you get out of Christianity? Will God answer your prayers? Will he not answer your prayers? Is there a difference? And a lot of times, there are three common ways where this really plays out. It's one thing to be like, no, 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 my faith is based on the character and love of Jesus. But I would then ask you, how do you respond when you pray, and you pray a prayer that for all intents and purposes, God should have no trouble answering. You pray a prayer where, like, you cannot see why God would not answer it. It's a completely benevolent prayer. It's a net gain for the universe. There's no reason why God wouldn't answer this prayer. And then he doesn't. How does your faith react to that? When you have a prayer that you cannot... This is one thing to pray for, like, to win the lottery. It's one thing to pray for an A on a test you didn't study for. It's another thing entirely to pray for you to feel better and not feel sick. It's another thing for you to pray to get out of a hole that you're in. It's another thing for you to pray for somebody else, for somebody else's betterment, and then God not answer that prayer. Three most common ways that a results-based relationship with Jesus shows itself are through prayer, our understanding of salvation in heaven, and our understanding of what it means to be blessed by God. We'll start with the first one, which is probably the most common and that's our prayer life. It, with that in mind, I would argue that when it comes to prayer, that the phrase, God answers prayers. A lot of you guys, if you grew up in church, you've heard this many times. God answers prayers. God answers prayers. I would argue that phrase is a pretty shaky statement to build your faith on. The reason I say that is this. And when I say God answers prayers, I mean in the most simplistic understanding of that phrase, which is generally that God answers your prayers in the way you want on your timeline. If you spend any amount of time praying, you know that is very rarely, if ever, true. Very rarely. I can think of exactly one instance in my life where God has ever answered my prayer in the exact way I wanted in the timeline that I wanted. I shared this briefly at camp meeting, and I've shared this once before, but my first recollection of a prayer being answered was I was six years old, and I had what was called a Game Boy Color, if you remember. Um, it's like the first Game Boy that ever had color on it. Everything else before this was black and white. And I had Pokemon Silver version. And my mom was very, very, very strict in that she was, um, she like invented screen time, I guess. Well, she basically would not let me play other than weekends and only if I had finished all my chores and all my homework. And the added caveat to that was that she would decide when my screen time began and ended. And on top of that, I had to ask permission. And the the reason this story is so tense is because there was one time I came up to my mom and I asked her, Mom, it's a Sunday afternoon. I'm done with everything. No homework. We don't have church today. I have nothing to do right now. Can I play on my Game Boy? And she said, yes, you have 30 minutes. Rejoicing, I ran to my room to grab my Game Boy and lo and behold, I could not find it. I spent about two, three minutes tearing my room apart looking for this. I could not find it, so I ran practically in tears to my mom. I said, Mom, can you stop the timer, please? 
I can't find it. And she looked at me, and like in Korean, the rough translation is, that sounds like a personal problem. Maybe you should have placed it better. Otherwise, you would not have this problem. You have 25 minutes left. And so now I'm like, now I'm like angry, but I can't stay angry because I need to find my Game Boy. And I'm running around, and I am like practically in tears. And then I remembered, in, moment, in this moment of desperation, I turned to heaven, and I remembered the story I learned in Sabbath school, not too far removed from Daniel chapter 3, where there's a story where Daniel prays to God, and all I remembered, I don't even know why he did it, because it was not relevant for me, is that he prayed facing his window. And he opened his window and he prayed, you know, very famous, very boldly before he gets thrown into a lion's den. Um, he's facing Jerusalem, but for me, I was just, I faced the window in SoCal, and I prayed, and I remember he got on his knees and he prayed, and I was like, maybe if I do that, God will come through. And I remember I got on my knees, and I prayed facing my apartment window, and I said, some very simple prayer, God, help me find my Game Boy. Please, please. I'm sure I bargained. I will do anything. I will be a missionary. I will do whatever. I will be a pastor. I might have said that. That's probably why I'm here right now. <laughs> and I prayed, and my window was here. I had a desk here. My bed was behind me. I prayed, amen. I got up to turn around, and my Game Boy was underneath my bed. And I was like, Praise the Lord, hallelujah, prayer works. That is the only time in my life that has ever happened where I prayed specifically for something and God answered my prayer request in the manner and within the time frame that I asked for. Now, obviously, I, I told my mom about this and she's like, she was not very entertained by this. But again, for me, that is like a cornerstone memory in my faith where I was like, God does answer prayers. And then for the next like 20 years of my life, I found out not exactly. Not exactly. If you're here a few months ago, I shared, uh, again, another story in prayer where I was taking a test I did not study for in physics in high school, and I was getting destroyed. I, uh, it was maybe a 70-question test, and I went through, and the first lap around, I could only confidently answer, like, 15 of the questions. And so I was like, oh, no. And so I started freaking out and praying. Again, in desperation, I turned to heaven, and I spoke Jesus' name to him. I said, Jesus, help me. And then... I don't know how to describe it, but the just letters came to my head. Again, it was on the Scantron, so multiple choice test. A, C, D, D, E, E. And I finished the entire test. And I was actually the first one to finish the test. I walked in. All my friends were like, oh, my goodness. And I was like, what can I say? I turned it in. And I've told the story before. Um, I got what you would expect to get if you guessed on five-sixths of the test. I got one of the lowest grades in the class for that test. But again, a, a, a very like, strong reminder. And for me, that is a very like, foundational moment in my walk with prayer, where again, I now understand the complexity of prayer that God rarely, if ever, will answer your request in the way that you want, in the time frame that you want. And it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to experience it in your life, especially when the request that you make is so mind-numbingly good. Like, God, why wouldn't you heal this person? God, why wouldn't you help this person financially? God, why wouldn't you give this person a job? God, why wouldn't you help this person? God, why wouldn't you bring that person to church? God, why wouldn't you bring that person's child back into their lives? There's so many times we pray these prayers that for all intents and purposes, we're like, I cannot see why God would not answer this. And then when those prayers are not answered, the question becomes, what changes in your faith? And for a lot of us, it's very discouraging. For a lot of us, our faith gets shaken a lot. 
when God does not answer a prayer that we think he should have answered, it's very discouraging. And, and it makes you start to doubt, like, is God even real? And that's, that's when you have those questions. Does prayer work? What is the point of prayer? Is God even real? God loves me. He cares for me. He's powerful, but he won't answer such a simple and good prayer. And again, this isn't necessarily a sermon on prayer, and there's a lot more complexities to this. But what I can say is there are so many examples of God doing this in Scripture, where someone prays, they ask for a request, and God, and for all intents and purposes, it's a good request. It's a reasonable request, but for whatever reason, God chooses not to answer it. An example that comes to mind in the Old Testament is Moses. If, if you know towards the end of his leadership with Israel, he, he makes one fatal mistake where he hits the rock instead of speaking to it, and God's like, all right, that's it. You're banned. You can't go to the promised land. What you don't know is that later, which you may not know, is that later he prays to God, and he's like, God, come on. Like, please, can I? And God says, no, you cannot go to the promised land. And if you read, it's like so harsh. God, this man has led these stubborn, stupid people for so long. Like, come on. One strike, not the end of the world, God. Let him go. Let him go into the promised land. Let him just step one foot. God says no. And he dies buried outside of the promised land for whatever reason. Again, there's another example where Jesus, um, Philip, one of his disciples, asked Jesus, Jesus, it's all like, we love you, you're awesome, but you know what I feel like would really bolster our faith, Jesus? If we could see the Father, if you could show us God, Yahweh, oh my goodness, like, it would erase a lot of doubt, and you'd be so much better, and he looks at, Jesus looks at Philip and says, no, I am the Father. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, and the Father is in me, and in that moment, it's like, oh, it's a very theologically teaching moment about the Trinity and all that. But if you're honestly one of his disciples, it's easy to ask, like, what's the harm, Jesus? If you actually showed us God, don't you think all of our faiths would be bolstered a little bit? We'd all be slightly better Christians? Again, two examples where you look and you're like, I don't see why God wouldn't do that. What is the harm in showing us a holographic image of our Father? Or just, you know, hearing a voice from heaven. I'm sure that would have helped. God, what's the harm in forgiving Moses one more time and letting him go into the promised land? I mean, he messed up once. Is that that big of a deal? And again, there are probably a lot of nuanced answers in all this, but the end of the day, at least when it comes to prayer, the, re the reality is, if your faith is built on how often God will answer your prayers in the way that you ask according to your agenda, you're going to be prone to spiritual highs and crashes because then your faith will be based on how well your life is going and how well, how well God is doing of a job of being your personal genie, which sounds really bad when I say it that way, but ask yourself, when's the last time your prayer wasn't answered and your faith was completely rattled because of what God would not do for you on your behalf? To continue, on a more kind of casual Christian note. There's some, some of us maybe here that you grew up with an understanding of Christianity and you were told that the main thing in Christianity is you need a relationship with Jesus. You don't just need to like believe that he exists. You need to like get intimate with him and learn about who he is and his character. And that really turned you off. And really, if you were to ask yourself, the reason you're a Christian, the reason you're a part of a church, the reason you want your family to be a church is not so much because you want a relationship, it's because you want to go to heaven. You're scared of death, and this concept of the afterlife gets to you. And the real reason you're here is you want to secure your ticket. When everything comes crashing down, the second coming happens, you heard a prophecy that scared you a little bit, and the real reason you're at church is, I want to make sure myself, my loved ones, my family, 
can get in through that gate. So I will be here. I will do what I got to do. I'll be a good person. I'll attend church. But I don't want that relationship. What I really want, I want an eternal vacation in the clouds. Like, that's what I really, really want. For some of us, it's a very alluring motive, right? I just, I just want to get to heaven. I'll be a good person. I'll do what I got to do to get there. But the real reason I'm here is because I want to make sure that in the afterlife, whatever happens, I have that insurance policy. The whole story of Christianity, the reason that's such a flawed reason, an unsustainable reason to have faith, is because a large part of the story of Christianity is about how Jesus left heaven to pursue a relationship with you. And when you have that reverse mentality, you're essentially saying, Jesus, I, that's cool, I get that you did that, but I, don't, I want what you left. I think heaven and paradise and pain-free life and just escaping the nastiness of earth and punishment is more important than what you thought was valuable in your eyes. That the story of Christianity is how God left heaven for earth for 33 and a half years and lived as a mortal human to open that door for a relationship with you. So clearly Jesus' values when it comes to heaven and just being in some pillowy cloud mansion in heaven is not very high as it pertains to actually getting to know you and showing his love for you. And lastly, probably the most common results-based metric is that for a lot of us, our relationship with God is results-based in that it's based on how well is my life today? How good is life? The idea of blessings. How many blessings can I count in my life? How is my job? How are my social circles? How is my relationship with my family and my friends? Am I stressed? Because if I'm stressed, God must not be very relevant. But if life is going good, then God is good all the time. Hashtag blessings. Awesome things are happening for me. And largely what we talk about and for this, the reason this is such a flawed way is that in a lot of ways when you read scripture, it's true that God wants to bless you. And it's true that God wants a life where you have peace and joy and fulfillment. The problem is, though, that a lot of times when you read scripture, and particularly Jesus' teachings, you find that Jesus and God's definition of a fulfilling life, of a good life, is completely at odds with what the world describes as good and fulfilling and enriching. And, it's, and the thought becomes dangerous when we expect that following Jesus will make life go the way we want it to go. And a lot of us, we came into Christianity, and people told us, following Jesus is the best decision I've ever made in my life. A lot of testimonies end that way. My testimony, my decision to, to follow Jesus ends that way with me saying, following Jesus into ministry, into whatever he calls me to do, was the best decision I've ever made in my life. It's made my life better. But a skewed version of that can be where you tweak that and you want following Jesus to make your life go the way that you want it to go, and that ultimately you just want all of your wishes and all of your dreams to be co-signed by God. Where God, I have these aspirations and these goals and these benchmarks I want to hit. I'd love it if you could sign off on them and say, I am God and I approve and I will make that happen for you. The downside of that is that a lot of times God's version of what is best for your life is very different from what you want. I shared this before a few times from the pulpit and also in private conversations, but when I followed, when I decided to, to, in high school to follow God into pastoral ministry, I, I was left with a lot of dissenting views from my loved ones, family friends, family friends. And a lot of them were like, why? Like, why would you do this? And, you know, there were a lot of valid concerns for, like, why you should not 
go into ministry and all the downsides and all the cons. And the reality was that on paper, in a lot of ways, this was not a very enriching life goal, right? I mean, you can still help church and help at church and, you know, have a different profession, right? A profession where you don't work every weekend or you get paid more or this more cool or respected and trendy. Why would you not just do that? And as I was explaining to people, I realized that there was really no on-paper way or metric for me to tell people that, like, I think this is the best decision for my life. Because for all accounts and purposes, people were like, I don't think it is. I really don't. And they gave me a slew of reasons of why that would not be the case. But I say that by being able to confidently say, and as, I, as I've said many times before, that me going to ministry has been single-handedly the greatest decision I've ever made in my life. But, and I've been able to experience blessings that I've never even imagined were possible, and the people that I've met, the opportunities that I've had through ministry and through following Jesus would blow my mind five years ago. But in that same line of thought, I don't know that I could go back to my 16-year-old self and explain these things to him and as to why going into ministry would be a good life decision. I don't know if I could tangibly do that because he could when your, when your priorities and your idea of what a good life is is that skewed, it doesn't make sense from a spiritual standpoint. The blessings I've been able to experience and, and uphold are, I think, would be hard for me to explain to my 16-year-old self that was so just engrossed with, I just need to make a lot of money and have that, that job that my parents are telling me to get. The reason I say this again is because, again, I can confidently say, greatest decision of my life, but B, if your idea and your faith is based on how well your life is going and you define that metric and you don't use God's rubric, it can be a pretty shaky place to find your faith. All that to say, if you're tired of the ups and downs and the spiritual highs and the inevitable crashes that follows, it's possible that it has less to do with the actual event of camp meeting, Kayam, the revival, weekend revivals, and more to do with what is your actual foundation in Christianity and your relationship with God based on. We, we sing in our opening psalm, song of firm foundation. I have peace that makes no sense. I have joy. I won't be going under because my, my strength is founded on Jesus. And it's amazing to sing, but is that actually the case for you? Because if your relationship with Jesus is motivated and based on how often God is going to come through according to your agenda, your foundation is built on sand. That's the reality. If your relationship with Jesus and your faith is based on how many of my wishes is God going to tick off? The reality is, it's not, a, it's not going to be a very consistent relationship. And more importantly, it's because when your faith is built on God's adherence to your agenda, the question then becomes, who is worshiping who? Who is following who? Who is God? Is it really Yahweh? Is it really the one true God? Or is it the one giving him orders? And the one asking him to conform to your life? Now, we're going to impact this a little bit more as we go on through the series. But for this week, I want you to genuinely ask yourself this question. And it can be done privately in your devotional time with God, or it can be asked in a community in your small group this week. But it's really important that you ask yourself this question before we go any further in this series. And the question is, why are you pursuing a relationship with Jesus? And the reason I ask that question for a lot of us, especially if you grew up in church, is that your relationship with Jesus is unique in that if you grew up in church, you were told that you have a relationship with Jesus. And a lot of times you were told, actually, that you already love Jesus. You don't know? And like you grow up being told you, you have a relationship with Jesus, you love Jesus, God is important to you. 
And for a lot of us, we just took that mindset of, okay, I guess I do. And then we just got older. And now if you were to ask yourself the question, why are you pursuing a relationship with Jesus? You can give that knee-jerk, Sabbath school answer, well, because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But this week, I truly want to ask yourself, especially if you're someone that's prone to these spiritual highs and crashes, and you find yourself asking, like, why can't I sustain my relationship with God? Genuinely ask yourself this question this week. Why are you pursuing a relationship with Jesus? What is the true motivation for why church and God are a priority for you? Why do you tell your kids to prioritize it? Why do you tell your family to prioritize it? And again, you all know what the answer is supposed to be, but for just a second, put it aside and dig a little deeper because based on your answer to that question, you could very well find that your foundation, the foundation of your faith is built on, dang, I guess I really am only a Christian when it suits me. Or dang, I guess my, my faith is really based on how often God will answer my prayers. Or you really, really get down to it and you discover, I guess I just don't want to be on earth and want to go to heaven. And I would just like that little extra life insurance policy. If that's the case, you can then ask, ask, pray and prayerfully ask God to take those motivations away. But again, for the rest of the series, it's going to require a level of honesty and introspective where you ask yourself, what is the true motivation for your relation with God? And if it's not based on God's faithfulness and his kindness, ask yourself the question, who would you rather have running your relationship with God? What would you rather be based on? An infinitely wise, patient, and powerful God or you, with whatever adjectives you'd like to use to describe yourself. I want to end with this promise of God found in 2 Chronicles, where he reminds us that this door is always open for us as we ask this question to ourselves. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, in other words, if my people will repent and seek me again, I will turn, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will hear their land. This will be our promise that we take with us for the rest of this series as we ask ourselves, what is the foundation of our faith built on? And as we run back to God, we hold on to his promises of hearing us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, God, this, this can be a, a pretty frustrating or interesting place to be, Father, as we turn to you and in the midst of this, this end of the summer as we come off from the spiritual high and our crashes, Lord, there are people in here that are potentially very frustrated with the state of their spiritual life. And as they think about their life and, and the ups and downs of their walk with you, God, it can be a very frustrating place to be when our faith is so reliant on events and circumstances, God. And we want that consistency with you. We want to get to know you more intimately and deeper. But ultimately, our faith gets tossed up like the waves, Lord. And whatever happens in our lives determines our faith in you. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that feels that way, Lord, and that's ready to to recommit and to really understand how to build a consistent relationship with you. I ask that you guide them this week, Lord. As we ask these questions to ourselves as to what our faith is really based on, Lord, guide us to your truth, Lord, and remind us of your love, which time and time again calls us back to you, Lord. Remind us of who you are. Remind us of your promises. Remind us that when we build our life and our trust and our faith on your character, on your work, on your deeds, and on your promises, Lord, there's nothing that can stop us that you will be there by our side through all the ups and downs of life, that our faith remains strong in you. Praise in your son, Jesus' name.